You ready to eat from the Word of the Lord tonight? Amen. You've already been fed. Good. Already been eaten. Grab your Bible or your device and navigate with me to Romans chapter 12. And then we'll be over in Daniel 1 in just a few moments. Romans 12 and Daniel chapter 1. The last few weeks on Sunday night, we've been walking through a curriculum that was pulled together by Chip Ingram and in his book entitled R12, where really he's just unpacking what Romans chapter 12 gives to us in this picture of what true spirituality is all about. And as we've been looking at this, we've been taking a verse from Romans and and this idea that this is a road map, it is a diagram of what real, true, authentic Christianity looks like. And we've been seeing that it's not a chapter all by itself, It's, 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 it's laced with real life stories from men and women all throughout Scripture who lived out these principles. And we're going to do that tonight, looking at Daniel's life and looking at what that brings to us in the context of authentic, true spirituality. As we see there in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, we find Paul's words. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Verse 2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Then, you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Lord, I thank you that you have not given us your will to live by in some kind of a mandate to try to find a needle in a haystack. You don't point and laugh and say, look, my kids can't figure it out. You long for us to find your will. You long for us not only to know your will, but to live and and to follow your will. And so, Lord, I pray that you would guide and help us even now as we look at what you put in Paul's heart when he penned this. As we can begin to find these principles in Daniel's life and, Lord, the principles that you are longing to place in our heart as we live out authentic, true spirituality. Thank you, Jesus, for opening our hearts and mind. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as we dive into, again, another great picture of real-life account of another man, or in later weeks we'll have other women who have encountered this authentic spirituality, uh, we're going to look in the Old Testament. The fact is that in this story we get a good picture of this Romans 12, 1 and 2 passage. We hear about him when he's a teenager in chapter 1. We find out more later in chapter 3. But we begin to see that God is at work in the life of Daniel. As we looked at Zacchaeus, I was going to say Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, that's tonight. But as we looked at Zacchaeus this morning, it, it took my mind back to flannel board images in Sunday school. Now, looking across here, many of you know what I'm talking about. If, if you are of the younger generation here, uh, this is not PowerPoint. Uh, this is not 
uh, something up on the screen. It, it is, uh, how do you describe that? It's this fabric sticky thing that they threw up there. It's the precursor to PowerPoint. And, and I think of these images that came across uh, our Sunday school classrooms that we've heard over and over again. The story of Daniel is another that we get pictures in our mind. It's ingrained in our mind of Daniel and the lion's den. We think of Daniel praying in his closet. We think of Daniel who is facing all kinds of persecution. But sometimes we forget where all this started. And tonight we're going to look at Daniel chapter 1 and begin to see what takes place in the beginning days of the account with Daniel. The first thought is this. Daniel's journey reveals how to get God's best for our lives in a hostile environment. We're going to begin to see not just a history lesson of what went on in Daniel's life, but we're going to see how his day he lived, his culture he lived in, is not all that different from the culture we find ourselves in. And we can begin to see how to have God's best in our life as Daniel had that in his life. From the time he was a teenager until he was a very, very old man, he is put in position after position after position, and God brought blessing upon his heart, a position of authority, a position of influence, a position to hold his ground for the Lord. He gets God's highest and God's best. But it's because he had some convictions. It's because he had some courage in him to do what God was calling him to do. And he does these things over and over. And he does the things that most people are not willing to do. There's a few life lessons that is going to come out of this scripture. And we're going to do this in backwards order right now. This is not on the screen. This is not in your outline. This is extra. This is free. I'm not going to charge you for this. But, but there's some quick rapid fire life lessons that I want to highlight. Then we're going to go back to the story. You can look at it there in Daniel 1 and begin to see where these come out. The first is this. Life lesson number one that we'll see in the context of this passage is that we are not at, merce, at the mercy of a pagan culture. Now, sometimes I hear remarks and I hear thoughts that it, it's so bad, it, it's so perverse, there's so many things happening that, that, that we just can't help it. There's so many sexual images that are bombarding our teenagers and kids, we just need to resign to the fact that they're going to experiment and they're going to experience sexuality in a way that's not pleasing to God. We don't have to embrace that concept or that thought. We don't have to live as victims in a pagan culture. We can have victory there. If a 15 and or 16-year-old young man can live in Babylon and be victorious in that area, that'd be like sending your 15 or 16-year-old to go to Las Vegas and to, to grow up there in their life. Could they have any victory? If, if these young men could see this take place in their life with the help of the Lord, then we too don't have to be victims to this culture. A second life lesson is this. The future of our world will be determined by who captures the next generation. Now, we've heard this talk about all, all over the place. We, we hear it talked about in the political arena of, of uh, economics. Uh, how much are we mortgaging the future of, of future generations? How much are we making decisions now that impact them? And there's some value there when we think of that economically. We see this in all kinds of uh, cultural ideas that whoever grabs the youth are the ones who are helping control the next future. And it's true in the church as well. We need to understand that whoever is involved or, or bringing up training of our kids and our teenagers has an impact on where the future generations will be. 
I'm going to show you tonight through God's Word that God has a game plan to not only capture the hearts of our youth, but to empower them to lead right now, not someday. A third life lesson is that the protection of our children from this culture, to not be exposed to anything in this culture, is almost impossible. But we can see the preparation of our children to be strong for God in this culture is absolutely doable with the power of the Lord. We also see this final life lesson with biblical convictions and a winsome spirit. The next generation can change and could be transformational people just like these young men were in Babylon. Well, how did Daniel and his friends do this? How did it work for them? Let me just give you a little snapshot as we dive into this. It's 605 B.C. The place is Babylon. You could jot down the word judgment. That is a key word, a key theme that is happening here. That's good for us to remember today. You may want to jot down in your notes Hebrews chapter 12. It's a good New Testament reference for what's taking place where the Lord works through all kinds of things. He disciplines and and He prepares and and there is this preparation and, and, and a rigidness in the Lord's love and judgment that will be taking place. God brings about this discipline He doesn't punish us, but He does discipline us for our own good. And the spiritual climate in this day that we find Daniel and his friends is wickedness. You don't have to look to too many different news sources around you to see that you too can find wickedness in the culture in which we live. Well, the next thought here is that Babylon or the world... They have a game plan, and the game plan they had was to seduce Daniel's soul. It's in Daniel chapter 1, verse 3 through 7. I won't read it to you, but you can glance at it there, and maybe later on this week you can read through this. But there is a game plan to seduce his soul and the soul of his friends. How did they do it? The plan was to change his thinking, to change his worship, and to change his lifestyle. Those three things right there, number one, to change his thinking, to change his worship, and to change his lifestyle. If, if the culture could be successful in changing the way that they would think, changing what they would worship, what they would lift up, and change the way that they would choose to act and live, they would have successfully changed these young men. The Babylonian game plan to seduce Daniel's soul was wrapped up in these three things. And it's important for us because the enemy still uses that plan today. To get the information into their heads was paramount. You've got to change their thinking to change who they are and what they will do. By the way, that's one of the most important things for us as parents and grandparents and those who are pouring to the next generation is to help build safeguards around what we put into our minds for ourselves and for sure in the minds of our kids. One of the most important decisions that you will make as parents or grandparents is what your child will take into their eyes, take into their ears. What do they read? What do they watch? What do they saturate themselves with? We're in our culture now through media that it's not just what you are watching. It's not just what it gives you, but it's how much you get of it. Oh, I think it was a couple years ago there was a new term put into the dictionary. Binge watching. This Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime culture uh, 
internet video culture where you can take episodes of a TV show and just like you would binge eat or binge drink, you can binge watch a show. You can get so much Scooby-Doo that you're Scooby-Dooed out. You could see so much of the Andy Griffith show that that whistling song is bouncing around in your brain over and over again. And as annoying as that may be to not get that song out of your head, there's all kinds of subtle messages that when you're taking them in large quantities are no longer subtle. It is a reprogramming of how we think over and over again. The good news is we don't have to be afraid of this. We also live in a culture where God's Word is so readily available in every form possible to read in text, to take in through our ears, to watch with our eyes what I saturate myself with, I soon become. We'll dive into that in just a little bit. But we see that this game plan to change their thinking, to change their worship, and to change their lifestyle is oh so important. We have... More depression in our culture today than anywhere else in the world. In our Western culture, we have more anxiety. We have more violence than any nation. We have more problems. Why? Because you are what you eat. Physically, spiritually, emotionally. What you consume, what you feed on, will come out. And so that's what the Babylonians did. They said, hey, we're going to change their physical diet. We're going to change their mental diet as well. We're going to change what they lift up, what they exalt, and we will change them. It's interesting that they want to change their names. They want to change Daniel's name from one that means God is judged to give him a new name that literally means the lady protecting the king or the king's wife. So when your name was this one who was acknowledging God is my judge, his very identity, his core, his name, was screaming out, God is my judge, he is the one that is, is, is in charge of my life, to now a new name that says, the king's wife is the one who I serve. That was the meaning of the name. Our identity is tied to how we view ourselves. What identity are you passing on to those around you who are looking up to you? I don't just mean what name did you give your children or what name did your children give to your grandchildren or what nicknames you call them, but what do you allow them to hang their hat on is who they are. What is their identity? If they can shift their identity, then they begin to shift this game plan of what it is that they think about, what they worship, and how they live. They not only changed the name of Daniel, they changed the name of his three friends with him. We know them as their names changed to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This was the name that they were given, but their identity by them was trying to be forced to be changed. While they couldn't control what other people called them, they absolutely held their ground and what they chose to accept. What they chose to accept. So, when we look at what their names were, and how they were trying to redirect them, they were trying to give them not only a new identity, but new heroes, new people to look to. In our culture, you can identify what we value, who our heroes are, and what we compensate people with. 
It wouldn't have been that many generations that you would ask kids what they want to be when they grow up and they may say a doctor or a lawyer or I may want to be a teacher, I want to be an educator, I may want to be a fireman, I may want to be a policeman and there was ideas and value placed that they wanted to be someone who helps somebody. They wanted to be in a place of, of authority in a good way. But we look at our culture now, what we value and where we compensate. We have 19, 20, 22, 23, 24-year-olds making millions upon millions upon millions of dollars for how they hit, kick, catch, and throw a ball. And the values of what is so important is if I could hit, kick, catch, or throw a ball like that, then my life would be amazing. There was a study done just about four or five years ago of middle school students of what they wanted to be when they grew up. It was interesting to me to hear the number one response that this statistician gave that they heard over and over again. The number one response was to be an assistant to a rock star. I read that and I thought, that's interesting. As much as it disturbed me to think they'd want to be a rock star, I thought, well, I could see that they want to be in the limelight. But the idea was now, could I just get close enough to someone who is famous? Could I just get close enough to someone that I could begin to, to attach to this good life? I may not have the talent to do this, but, but if I could just be close to those who were making it big. Our culture says, if you can perform well in a game, if you can make it big on American Idol or The Voice and get your big break, then we worship you. Our kids need to be taught. Our friends need to be reminded of what it is the Lord calls us to lift up. Well, that's how they wanted to change their thinking, their worship, their actions. Changing their food, changing their identity, changing the patterns and how they would live. But God's game plan to transform Babylon and God's game plan to transform the world is stronger yet. We find it in chapter 1, verse 8 through 21. And there was a reason that these 15 and 16-year-old boys in Babylon in this wicked, immoral, sexual culture, there was a reason that they were able to stay pure. There was a reason that they were able to stand strong. Not once, not twice, but decade upon decade. They had parents, they had people investing in them what was true. They also had people investing in them what was false. They were taught this is the truth about who God is. They were taught that they would be tempted to fall, follow false gods and false idols. They would be tempted to go these ways. They were taught how they experienced the very grace of God and the goodness that came from following and obeying Him. They were taught that there would be very real, attractive substitutes that would end in death. It may seem good on the front end, but it is horrible on the back end. They would choose to follow and serve what they had been taught. Part of the game plan is this, that they would prepare the next generation to change the world. While we cannot protect those around us from everything in this culture, we can surely prepare ourselves and prepare those that we love to how to encounter the resistance around them. This only happens with intentionality. It only happens by positive modeling. It happens by saying, I'm going to care about what goes into the mind of those who I've been entrusted to care for. This is what's scary and crazy. Not only is it what we intentionally share to those we love, it's what they witness and watch of what we value. If we're going to prepare the next generation, they're 
highest level of preparation comes from observation of you and me. I remember hearing it said over and over and over and over again by a preacher that I lived with and was forced to hear every night of my life whether I wanted to or not. It was my dad. To where it was something that I heard and something that I thought about and something that I began to believe and something that became passionate in my own heart. As he would preach and teach and talk to men, he would say, Men, your children most likely will love Jesus at the level you do or less. Now there are those who break from that statistic. There are those who find Jesus on their own. But, but if the numbers tell us anything, your kids will love Jesus at the level that you do or less. Most of the time, that's what happens. Because this idea of do what I say, not what I do, value what I tell you to value, but not what I have taught you to value, but what I hang on to, just doesn't work very well. And so not only do we need to be intentional about how we prepare this next generation for the world, but could we be intentional ourselves and say, I want to be close enough to Jesus that I could take Paul's words and say, follow me as I follow Christ. Not that I'm perfect, not that I have everything down, but, but you mimic your patterns after how i'm living for jesus and there will be preparation for you not only was there preparation of the next generation to change the world but god's plan to help these boys stand strong was to position godly people in places of influence that's the next one here position godly people in places of influence god over and over began to position them in a place where they had influence notice that god didn't put them in some holy hut isolated somewhere no they were right in the middle of a pagan culture and they ended up as the top students of those who were being gathered they ended up being people that would lead a nation daniel at one point in his life ends up being the number two guy calling the shots in the pagan world why because he's getting god's best why because he's fearing the lord and he's obeying the lord and we see that when you fear the lord it's the beginning of all wisdom and if you mess with god's principles and you begin to live by them they work they begin to make their way in your life now this does not mean that if i serve god i get every job interview that i hoped for if i serve god then then i will always get everything that i ask no no no. the lord will place you and me in areas of influence some of those areas may not be very attractive some of those areas may not be ones that we desire, but no, make no mistake, he will put you in a place, like Samson, to put your hands on the pillars as you knock down the things that need to be knocked down. Whether it costs us our life or not, you and I will be in a position of influence. The only way that they were going to transform the culture was for them to be Christians who stood strong in the culture, to be in the world, but not of the world. Next, we see that there was this plan of God to prosper those who follow His ways and to prosper those, follow His ways over the ways of Babylon. When they would put God above the ways of Babylon, He would show favor to them and blessing to them. And just like the other point that I said, this doesn't mean that if you follow God, you get everything you want. It does mean when you follow God, He gives you everything that He wants for you to have. 
He gives you all the favor that he wants you to have. He gives you all the resources that he knows you need to have. He clears the path for everything that needs to be cleared for you. And there is this prospering aspect in the path that God has called them to. The New Testament word for perfect often challenges us. Because when we look at Webster's Dictionary and we think of perfect, we think of being without error, no blemish, nothing wrong. But in the New Testament, this word is teleos. Teleos literally means to be perfected for one's purpose. The same thing about prospering is very, very similar. When we think about prospering in the context of our culture today, we think about large sums of money. We think about authority. We think about comfort. We think about security. But this is not God's biblical definition of prospering. To prosper in the thing of the Lord is to grow in obedience with Him, to fulfill the mission He's called you to. And in many ways, it is also this teleos, to be made perfect for your purpose. And so Daniel and his friends, they would prosper. They would be given places of influence. They would be given favor. They would gain traction in the culture to do what it is that God had set them out to do. At the end of chapter 1... We see that God not only gave favor to Daniel and his friends, he gave favor to Daniel before the king, and and God gives favor all throughout his life. And the chapter ends with a very interesting little line. You could almost miss it. It's the end of chapter 1, verse 21. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. The timeline, what is it? It's 539 B.C. Translation for us. That's a very, very long time. A very, very godly man got all of God's best and he was able to prosper and to be a leader in the same place, faithful year after year after year because the Lord gave him the resources. They were prepared. They were positioned in a place to do God's mission and they prospered because they followed the will of God. Well, how does that play out for you and me? What does that translate for us? Daniel's confidence in God's promises and God's character, it was the secret to his convictions and to his courage. Your blanks there is conviction and courage. What made this possible for Daniel and what made it possible for who we know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to stand there in the fiery furnace and say, my God will save me, but even if he doesn't, I will still serve him. How do they have that kind of stance? How could they live in that godless culture and begin to see some change happen, but in the face of opposition, day in and day out, there was convictions and there was courage that was immovable in their heart and in their life. This world has their own idea of truth, and it will propose that truth to us. Magazines like Cosmo and Entertainment Tonight will tell you that success is being happy and getting what you want. Forbes magazine will tell you that when you get enough of what it is you're working for, you will be happy. People magazine will tell you if enough people like you and vote on you, then you will have success. That's what you live for. In our culture today, we don't need any magazine to tell us if I can have so many followers on Twitter, if I can get so many likes or comments on Facebook, then I have created this pseudo-fake world where I am my own rock star. Social media is is not morally good or bad. It's it's, it's right in the middle. It can be used for evil. It can be used for good. One of the things that aggravates me about this medium is it's very fertile ground 
for what's going on in the heart to come out in a very loud and public way. You want to see selfishness, look at most Twitter feeds and most Facebook walls. Me, me, I, I, look, look, me, I, I, look, me, look at me, I look at me all the time, I look at me. It can be all about what I'm experiencing. Oh, look about the comments that people share and think. Often they will say things that they would not even dare say face to face to a person or to a group of people. It's not even just the church who recognizes this problem. Our general culture is beginning to understand there's this challenge with the thought of cyberbullying. There's this challenge with this thought of this fake pseudo-bubble that we live in, that we create for ourselves in the digital world that is not reality. The problem is we can begin to live in this fake idea of what success is. The pictures depict that I'm happy. The comments depict that I have friends who value me. And it can all be orchestrated from Photoshop and from your own creative posting. But these convictions and this courage is much deeper than anything the world could offer. In fact, the reason that we have so much to share with the watching world is because you don't have to tell them it doesn't work. Their gut knows it doesn't work. They may have way more money than you. They may have way more fame and popularity than you. They may have way more of of whatever it is they've been chasing, but they know it doesn't feel the hole inside their life. Our culture doesn't need another lecture on how they live and how it doesn't work. They need an example of, of Daniel, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to say, I have convictions that I will not bend. I have a courage that I will offer out hope. There's a new way. There's a better way. There's a different way. That's Jesus' most famous sermon. That was his three points. He didn't say it that way, but that's the summary I have of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. I have a new way, a better way. It's a different way. Follow my father's commands and we get this idea of convictions what what is this conviction look at this convictions is refusing to compromise in spite of the cost how did daniel live this way he had convictions he was prepared for it he was positioned for it the lord prospered him to live this out but he had convictions what is this refusing to compromise in spite of the cost it cost him a whole lot It almost cost him his life. As he stood there in the lion's den, as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood there in the fiery furnace, just because you may not be facing persecution that threatens your very life, don't be confused that standing up for your convictions won't cost you something. This preparation, this positioning, this prospering that the Lord brings... It's rooted in our obedience to Him and this refusing to compromise at all costs. How do you get convictions? They're more caught than they are taught. Proverbs 13, 20 says, He who dwells with wise men will be wise. I was in a conversation with some of our leaders here at Grace Point and I had such a proud moment just to hear the discussion as they were talking about some ministry things and the topic came up about how we value multiple generations here at church and, and one of the discussions was leading in the direction uh, how can we engage the next generation and, and one leader said to another leader we need to help them tell their story. We need to allow them to share with one another what God has done. 
Why was that so right? Why did we all feel like that was the bullseye of what was happening? Because these kind of convictions are caught more than taught. I could force you to write it down and pass the test and did you get it all right? But it's a whole other thing to sit next to somebody and to, to see them live it out. It was a few months ago when Ruth York sat right here and she began to testify about what Jesus meant to her in her new situation. It was a catching moment. It's not just Sunday night. It's not just Sunday morning. It's all the time that we can get to pour into someone else, take time to invest in them, help them understand what a conviction would be, what it is that they will not compromise on. How can they have those It needs to be caught more than taught. A second way that we get a conviction is by personal discovery. Today, we have what I call baby food Christians. Those who drink the milk but refuse the steak. Baby food is good for babies. The spiritual infancy is a natural part of spiritual growth. But because we have so many outlets to receive milk, we can get our favorite podcast. We can read our favorite Christian author. We can get devotions sent to our inbox of our text uh, device. We can have all these things. It's on demand. I can get it when I want to. But the problem is, when you find yourself in a Babylon culture, this what some author thinks, what little paragraph of devotion, is not going to be enough to hold you to those convictions where you will not compromise. You will not bend. We need to pass on and teach, how can I myself hear from God? What does it mean if I sense that I feel the Lord is speaking to me through this passage of Scripture, and it's not some author, some pastor, some radio speaker who's telling me what to do. It's the very voice of God leading me. That's what holds me in a conviction. It's caught, not so much taught, but it's also discovering how to hear from the living God. If you're here tonight, and you don't know who's discipling you or who you are discipling, don't leave without talking to me. If you want to be in a discipleship relationship, I guess if you don't want to, then go ahead and leave. But if, if you're not sure where that's taking place, talk with me. It doesn't have to be with me, but there's, there's a number of men and women who are intentionally trying to do this very thing. It's not rocket science. It's not hard. It's actually believing that Jesus actually does what he says he will do. We sit at his feet. We say, Jesus, I want to think about who you are. I want to begin to see what you're already doing around me. I want to understand it, not just be thankful, but I want to cooperate with you. I want to listen to you through your word. What are you saying to me through your word? What are you saying to me through other believers? What are you saying to me in a still small voice? Corinthians talks to us that we can have the mind of Christ. Where do we learn how to discern? Is that Jesus speaking to me or is that like the bad Subway sandwich that I had for lunch? It was pretty gross. I'm telling you right now, I'm kind of feeling, that's serious, like. Like, I'm doing it right now. Hey, Lord, are you speaking to me, or is, is that indigestion? Are, are you speaking to me, or is that my own thoughts or fear of what's going on? Somebody needs to come alongside and help. That's a part of what happened for Daniel. That's a part of what needs to happen in our culture today. Not only did Daniel have convic- convictions, refusing to compromise in spite of the cost, but Daniel, he also had courage. Courage is refusing to conform even when you're afraid. Convictions, he knew what was right, he wasn't going to bend, and courage was refusing to conform to the pressure to let go of those convictions. It's not this idea to eradicate any kind of concern or, or this first thought of fear, 
but it's to say, in spite of the fear, in spite of what I'm facing, I, I will choose to follow what God says over what man says. When the apostles ask the question, should we obey you or should we obey God? It's this courage to refuse to conform. I think so many Christians live in defeat because of guilt. It breaks God's heart when they live in this habitual disobedience. It's not that they miss the mark, but they're, they're not following God. And God says, this is what I want you to do. And they say, I, I want to do what I want to do instead. And they have this willful disobedience that they live with. And they confess and ask for forgiveness. And the Lord is faithful to forgive. But, but they don't allow them to break the chains of that willful disobedience. And they go back into it over and over and over again. And they need a dose of conviction and a dose of courage to say, Lord, with your help, I will not go back. That's the infilling of the Holy Spirit. But somewhere it needs to be passed on. How does this Romans 12, 2 happen? Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. If, if, <laughs> if, if you want to see church attendance go up, talk about God's love. Talk about finding how to know God's will. If you want to see church attendance go down, then talk about money or giving or talk about sin. That's just facts. The good thing is we're going to talk about everything that Jesus talks about and not worry about the other things. But why is it it's so attractive to hear about God's love, so attractive to hear about God's will, and we're not so sure we want to hear about sin, and we're not so sure we want to hear about giving or sacrifice. It's because we would love to get the blessings of God without actually having to obey God. It's not that hard. You know how often you as leaders and as pastors, we hear the idea, how do I know God's will? There are times when I think it's actually a teaching that's needed to discern what God's will is. But many, many, many times, it's not so much I don't know what God is asking me to do. I'm wrestling with if I want to do it. What he asked me to do just seems so out there, so backwards to Babylon, so backwards to our culture. Is there conviction and is there courage refusing to conform even when we're afraid? Jesus sums this up in John 8, really what Daniel was teaching us, and Paul does this in Romans 12. Basically, if we want this all summarized for us, third and final here, Daniel's life reveals that getting God's best is a no-yes proposition. That's what it is. It's a no-yes proposition. I will no longer be conformed to this world's system. I will say no to this world's system. And I will say yes, I will allow myself to be transformed by the renewing of my mind. That's getting the truth. Doing this allows us to stand up in a culture that presses against us. Well, won't that make me weird? You and I should be weird. Not unnecessarily weird, but our culture is different than this culture. When we allow ourselves to stop conforming to this world, we allow ourselves to be transformed. That's what God's will is. Jesus says it's not about trying harder. It's embracing truth. Understanding that he never asked you and you can't do it alone. That you need people to help you in this. And knowing this truth will set you free. Well, as we close tonight, that's a nice little talk. Isn't that nice? 
Oh, that's good. But I don't think Jesus just wants us to have a nice little talk. What do we do with it? It's like giving red meat to the tigers. There you go. Uh, Who in here would say, well, we don't want to have conviction. We don't want to have courage. We all say, yes, we want conviction. We want courage. But but what do we do with this? How do we pass it on? How could we live victoriously in this? I want to suggest personal application in two ways for us. What is it for you? I'm going to ask it for me. Do you or do I need to say no to that is squeezing the world's method into our heart? We're being squeezed into the world's mold. What is it that I need to say no to? We live in a culture that wants to say yes to all the wrong things and no to all the right things. Self-denial can be a very good thing. Fasting is not some ancient practice that should never ever be experienced again. What is it that may even have some value that you could say no to because it would help usher in what is better than what may just be good? What could you say no to? We know the idea of going on a fast for food. Some of us have medical reasons why that would be a dangerous thing. But friend, don't let it stop there. We could go on a media fast. We could go on a talking fast. That would be hard. It'd be hard for me. Take a half a day where you don't say anything. It's kind of quiet. Maybe hear a little bit better. Take some opportunities when you could talk about yourself on social media, on the phone, in circles with friends, and just say, for a while I'm going to say no to talking about me, and I'm just going to listen a little bit more. Maybe when you have an opportunity to tell somebody what for. Scared you, didn't I? Sorry. (laughs) I should warn you in the first two seats, you don't know what's going to happen. Instead of doing that, what if we'd say no to that and say, Lord, would you give me a slower pace to embrace what it is you may want to do? For some of us, he's going to tell us some things to say no to, but you know what's coming next. What is it that you could say yes to that would usher in the things of God? The reason it's a no-yes proposition is we need to get the no's first to make room for the yes. If you start the other way around, you're just not going to have... You're going to say, well, I I don't have space. Start saying no. Start letting the Lord tell you how to clear some space, clear some things out, and then just begin to funnel in the things he's saying yes to. There's somebody here today that this idea of binge watching, binge viewing, needs to be sanctified, needs to be set apart for God's use for you. Do you know that if you have a phone that connects to the Internet... You could hear God's word for no money at all, as much as you want to, your data plan will allow you to have. You could have the computer pour into you over and over again. If that, if that freaks you out, for $19, we can get you a Bible stick and the translation of your choice, and you could just saturate your mind with God's word. You, you may not even just study it completely, but just to have that running through your mind over and over again, just imagine what that would do. Some of us could could say, yes, Jesus, I'm going to carve out some significant time 
If it's getting a promotion, oh, we will do whatever it takes to to show our employer that we will do whatever it takes to help that company succeed. If it's helping our kids have an experience, oh my goodness, our culture is addicted to making sure our kids get good experiences. We will go overboard to travel and get them there and schedule things and get them back and forth and help them to get a leg up just to get that $100 scholarship that that may bless them somehow, but but we put $500 into getting that and, and it's anything to do that. What would we say yes to to help us get closer to Jesus? Any time. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your body as a living sacrifice. Trying to mastermind and find a way that we could have authentic spirituality without sacrificing anything is, is clearly not what Paul is calling for, not what the Lord is asking. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And trying to live for Jesus as close to the world's pattern as we possibly can is a recipe for frustration, and it's, it's flirting with disaster. But saying, Lord, would you show me what it means to be Daniel? What it means to be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Just as Abraham a couple weeks ago talked to us about what it means to surrender and to submit and to consecrate to the Lord, would you show us what it means to allow you to discipline us to say no to some things and yes to others? Jesus, I thank you.